2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 417, I am your host Tony C. Smith, hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy, welcome to the new year, man, has it taken me some time to, to get the battery started after this kind of in the holidays, and actually the holidays for me, the, the New Year section of it, the five days over, kind of the New Year, I was on night shifts. I don't know if I was batting or bowling, and I don't know if it was that, but it seems to just have taken an age for me to get back into the swing of it. And even now, you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing the show, and this is what kind of keeps us going. But then after that, I'll just probably be sitting on set E. I've got the last day off and I'll watch Dr. Zhivago. I've got loads to tell you about that. But I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is we have an interview with Nathaniel Calhoun, all about innovation and technologies, working with people in underprivileged countries to kind of get the food and get resources back up to kind of some, you know, normality. And it's a great interview with Nathaniel as well. I really enjoyed speaking to him. Then the main fiction is The Damaged by Bonnie Joe Stufflebeam. And this, this story was originally published in the Inner Zone. And man, you're in for a treat with this as well. So that's what's coming in to today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So yes, you know, welcome to the new year. Just a little note there. Jeremy, you, um, my assistant editor there, he's raised his chains from his... <laughs> the shackles from his desk there, and he's popped his head up, and He's just want to say that we are now kind of relaunching the forums. So we're going to be putting, like, show notes on the forums, and it's a place, again, to come back over and to kind of discuss things if you liked it, you know what I mean? Yes, post it on there and post it on, you know, Facebook, wherever, but just, you know, get the... Der- Jeremy wants the kind of the forums. We're going to have all the kind of the shows, you know, the, the Tales to Terrify and Far-Fetched Fables... All that, you know, going on there. So there'll be a link at the bottom of this post as well. You know what I mean? You can get straight from your phone, you can go straight to the forums and kind of discuss things. And did you like the story? Do you know what I mean? Did you like the interviews? That's, you know, we need to know these things. Yes, we're, we're desperate for some attention. And there's also the newsletter as well, don't forget. You can get on the newsletter and kind of join that as well. Straight from your phone, wherever you listen to this, straight down there you can kind of come in and be a part of the District of Wonders. Welcome to the District of Wonders. So, did an interview with Nathaniel Calhoun and just a very clever guy, you know what I mean, who's putting all these kind of, you know, the whole work energies into kind of just the technologies and, you know, development of like, say, third world countries just to get, you know, well, I don't want to kind of spoil the interview, but just to kind of bring these places where, you know, food and and just living conditions that are kind of totally different to kind of what, you know, the arm used to and what the kind of Western world's used to. And technology is is certainly, you know, there at the cutting edge, you know what I mean? And just new methods and new ideas. So have a listen to this interview and, and, you know, let us know what you think, you know what I mean? Because like you say, speaking of these people, it's just a remark and Nathaniel was a lovely guy as well. Do you know what I mean? Let's talk about technology, helping people become self-sufficient in countries where it's not always possible. Now, this is right in your technical field. Is that right, Nathaniel?
0: Yeah, I'm definitely trying to build um, food security uh, and creating educational initiatives that help people to become uh, more uh, aware of tactics to become food secure. And generally in vulnerable populations, uh, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa more than anywhere else.
2: See, now I would have thought, you know, you know, the kind of from outside the kind of of the know, I would have just thought like the, the big farming methods, you know, get their methods into Africa. And that would, you know, with all the kind of technology that would just pave the way to, to becoming, you know, a lot more profitable and with, you know, with food.
0: But that's not the case. is Am I right? Um, I would say that the more... The most credible research would indicate that it's not. The research that is neutrally funded, the research that's based on um, field work and that takes into account uh, wider social ramifications of industrial farming practices um, has repeatedly turned up that it's not beneficial on balance in the long term. Um, It's easy to come in with uh, fertilizers and pesticides, uh, with rented machinery and to have back-to-back years, several years even of, of bumper crops, to completely annihilate your previous records. If you were monocropping to begin with, um, you can you can outperform what your benchmark was. But if after that, what you find is that you've um, depleted the quality of your soil, so that more and more industrial additives are required, all of which you're paying for out of pocket. Um, a lot of farmers start to fall under financial pressures, having overstepped their their capacity, being kind of sold on a on a dream of, 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 of nonstop abundance farming. Um, you had, you know, there's a number of food activists in India that have kind of tracked, uh, how that kind of industrial farming approach is, has panned out there and associate it with a lot of, uh, farmer suicides, even considered an epidemic of, uh, farmer suicides. And, you know, people can kind of wiggle around and say, you know, yeah, but look, you know, here's a couple years where the sweet potatoes were more drought resistant and, you know, you can cherry pick a small window of time. Um, and, and beat out uh, a kind of unsophisticated approach to farming if that's your only comparison. But the organizations like uh, Oxfam um, and some of the researchers on behalf of UNCTAD, UNCTAD, and UNEP, UNEP, that have looked into agroecological design practices um, and really complex uh, farming methods that take advantage of the fact that smallholder farmers have lots of time and not that much land. so like just monocropping, it doesn't make sense. Like you're not taking advantage of the fact that their time is free and they can they can work with the complexity and, and handle that land much, much better. Um, so a lot of the, the, the things that I'm hopeful for are approaches that help to turn, help to dignify farmers by treating them as designers and to engage them in a thoughtful, creative partnership that enables them each differently to get the most out of Um, What they do instead of just saying, well, the market for, you know, cassava is exceptionally good nearby. Why don't you just, you know, knock down a forest and grow that?
2: (laughs) So where do you come in then, Nathaniel, within all this? Are you actually boots on the ground talking to like a farmer?
0: I would hope to build a partnership um, with implementing partners, uh, technicians and funders that would employ such people. And at various times, I would probably get down to that level of the project and make sure that I was I was confident that kind of our our protocols were being observed and that um, kind of best practices for designing development initiatives were in place. But that's not where I would spend most of my time. Um, I try to I try to rally people together around these approaches to development work and to try to bring some of the solutions that are. Um, particularly appropriate for the next 10 years and for vulnerable populations into the arena of development work where they've they've often, you know, not reached, maybe they've been developed in like a farm in Germany or California, and those people aren't connected to the the organization that's been training agricultural cooperatives in the Sahel for the last 20 years, like they've never talked so, I try to get them talking and often use technology as the bridge to to interest both of them because both of them are interested in technology, but neither of them may have the experience of using that technology in a way that actually links them appropriately together without entirely disempowering one or the other
2: I, That's what you, you mentioned technology there I'm so fascinated to find out you know what kind of technologies are we talking about you know because you would have thought yeah. in in like say sub Africa countries there is just not that not even internet access. You know Google's got their Google you know the the project where they're going to try and bring internet you know by flying balloons all over the place. But what kind of technology are we talking about?
0: Generally, at this stage, um, you're right. The the connectivity isn't necessarily there. What's what's starting to be there when there is like the last mile, like places that are maybe off grid but uh, kind of limited in their mobile connectivity. Um, there's more and more smartphones, uh, cheap, simple smartphones and tablets making their way out into the field. And the cost of smartphones has come down, you know, below you know, 30 quid or whatever, $50. So you're starting to find that as, as essentially a, a loosely distributed hardware platform. And so then the challenge becomes, um, how do you make that as transformational as possible? And so at first, when you have limited connectivity and you have limited, uh, limited technical literacy, what you want to do is just push uh, educational content through that in a way that simultaneously builds like communities of practice. So you're not educating one on one. You're trying to create um, you're trying to use a simple application to draw farmers together to share what they know with one another and just start tweaking the way that their own um, just to start sophisticating their own thinking about design. So bringing some of the agroecological design kind of principles and approaches into um, the type of farming that they've been taught, which largely resembles the kind of industrial, um, not the industrial, the green revolution stuff from, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, so at first, I think for the first three or four years, you really are just talking about simple, lightweight, non- inter- not even necessarily interactive or multimedia um educational tools that foster um, that, that cause groups to form and that help those groups to become gradually more nuanced and sophisticated in their approach to food security, biodiversity, resource cultivation. Because um, if you can bring them, if you can kind of create little, little if it's not cooperatives, if it's still groups that kind of uh become more resilient because of the network effect of looking after one another. Um, you don't have to worry if something goes offline. If something messes up for a while, your the, the thrust of what you've done kind of carries on for a while. Now, when when you do start having connectivity, when these smartphones become uh, next generation smartphones, there's all kinds of stuff that people are excited to do with uh, you know their ability to scan and photograph. People think we'll have hyperspectral cameras within. Run-of-the-mill smartphones in five years, and up, and certainly within ten. So at that point, you can start doing really great diagnostics. You can start getting much more um, specific and targeted in 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 how you treat your your farming and your microclimates. But up front, it's really uh, it doesn't even have to be much fancier than a content app that's really carefully designed um, with the people who will be using it, or with the people who typically train the people who will be using it.
2: Do you find – I'm interested in it, that little part there. And do you find people, you know, are interested to kind of grab this new technology or do, do you sometimes come up against old, like, ideology where it's, you know, it's, it's too modern, it's too, you know, technology is just not there for them?
0: At this point, it's pleasantly sticky. Um, the, <laughs> if there's somebody – like, if you've got a farming community that's kind of peripheral to connected society – And one of those people is is visibly engaging with and using and bettering herself with with an app and a smartphone. Um, She has the opportunity to get a great deal of social capital by sharing the use of that machine and and very often will. Um, And it drives kind of curiosity and adoption of the technology. There are some aspects of technology in some places that people are justifiably suspicious of. So one of the things that, you know, If you're trying to help a a farmer say uh, more advantageously contour the property that he's working with, you're likely going to be using some scanning and some GPS. Well, if you're in like Pakistan and I'm like a US funded NGO and I'm convincing you to like scan exactly your whole territory, you might be nervous about that, right? So there are places where the kind of intelligence gathering capacities of um, smartphones are already understood by people on the ground and people on the ground will have suspicion of how that data is used, which is actually healthy because there's like a good decade worth of people failing to think through the implications of, um, gathering lots of data about poor people on insecure servers or uh, allowing governments and, uh, and private companies to access it. But, but in general, um, you're not seeing a lot of of pushback against you know the idea of using an app on a smartphone um, outside of those contexts where there's some kind of you know bloodshed or wrongdoing in the not so distant past. Is
2: you know from your side of the fence again? Is it? Are we now in a are you in a bit of an uphill struggle or does it seem like your methods and the technologies it,
0: it is you know paying off? I would say that right now most of the momentum is going into. Um, the furtherance of monocrops with genetically modified, uh, you know, plants and with like advanced robotics to eliminate human labor. Uh, You know, people are working on the supply chain and storage and efficiency. Like they're not, they're working on stuff that takes a while to roll out that generally benefits people that move commodities in huge, huge bulk um, that is overall like privileged towards the markets that like to pick up that sort of commodity at a discount. Um, and the stuff I've been talking to you about, it's, it's certainly not picking up venture capital by and large. And, uh, within the donor community, donor funds can be a bit restricted around this kind of stuff because there's a good 10 or 15 years of, of kind of failed top heavy, um, tech initiatives that were were put together before the digital development principles came about, which are now making it a little bit more likely that, you know, initiatives like the ones I've discussed with you succeed.
2: Nathaniel is, I mean, we all kind of, you know, in the science fiction fans over here and that, but, and we talk and we there's so much in, in the news, you know, about, you know, technology, about kind of robots now helping, you know, helping hospitals, helping, you know, doctors. What about robots in in the field, almost, you know, from your side?
0: The general approach to this has just been uh, smarter and smarter planting and harvesting uh, robots for um, massive scale agriculture. The kind of stuff, if you saw, uh, what was that movie that, where the Interstellar, they have these robots, you know, giant combines going around, and, and they just imagine, you, you human hands need never touch the ground. A whole continent can be, can be lettuce can be planted, sensitive things. That's where a lot of the robotics is going. Um, but the robotics that interests me um, and that I think is much more relevant for like climate change adaptation and um, bringing kind of uh, food security and environmental security to vulnerable areas is robotics in favor, uh, in support of biodiversity. So we do have, um, there's one company they're called biocarbon engineering that are uh, working on uh, drones that are capable of planting seriously huge number of trees. So going into areas that are largely unpopulated um, where the landscape is a bit degraded um, and then at a, at a fixed kind of interval going around and and, and planting trees to reforest areas. It's a small step from taking uh, like once they've, once they've worked all the kinks out of that prototype and they start doing it, you know, at, at scale, it's a small step to start thinking about what would it be to put like a food forest in there, pockets of, uh, of, of agriculturally useful trees in addition to just like fast nitrogen fixing or fast growing timber type stuff. Um, and even before you get there, if you're looking at places where, you know, if you're looking at those mountains all down the middle of like, uh, California that are just drought stricken and essentially abandoned, or if you're looking at the, the Sahel just underneath the Sahara desert, where, you could you know plant all the trees you want and they're not going to grow um some of the initiatives that we've seen make a huge difference in degraded um landscape require a lot of simple repetitive tasks like uh yakuba Saladogo in burkina faso has a simple method of like tamping down um the earth into little crescents at, at a fixed interval depending on the the slope of the earth so that these little divots start to collect whatever's blown around in the wind and then that one or two days a year when it rains, they capture much more uh, nourishment, and then within a short number of years, you have uh, a massively improved quantity of like soil and vegetation where you wouldn't have had any if you simply didn't contour it. So there are there are ways that we can look into the future and imagine robots doing pretty low low effort kind of landscape maintenance to take areas that we've just abandoned and kind of just. Apply uh, contour and 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 shape to them so that whenever they do get that uh, hoped for bit of rain, as much as captured as possible, instead of it just running off all whatever topsoil remains and and, and flooding downstream with salt. Um, so I'm looking forward to when people start looking into those medium and long term uh, strategies with robotics instead of just how can I have more spinach, you know, in two months.
2: Does that not have a knock on effect though, Nathaniel, where you know you? The old kind of the old cliche. You're taking someone's job away there.
0: Well, th- what I'm talking about with with those with the type of robots that I've just talked about, you're doing things by and large where nobody nobody sees the value in paying human beings to do it. Right? You're at the you're at the the limit of arable land. You're at land that's basically considered non arable. People have probably resorted to pastoralism if there's any if there's any use of it at all, um, and it would take Kind of an organic hippie type person with a super long term vision to even want to hire a bunch of people to come contour that property. Like they're, the property is just it's it's been a, it's it's been written off. So it's a way of bringing written off land back into circulation, um, and in a way that you could do so. I mean, like you could have something just kind of out there functioning for a while. Uh, you know, just turning on when the sun's up. Uh, so I'm not talking the, the the job. The robots that steal jobs are the ones that come and harvest, that shake an almond tree, or or plant a piece of lettuce. Like those are those are deliberately coming in to save companies the money that they typically spend planters and harvesters. Things that work in the service of biodiversity aren't really working in an area that anyone pays for. It. Have we
2: got, I mean, it's, it's lovely to have insights into kind of what's happening. Have we got any, is there anything else like in the future, you know, like technology-wise, you know, apart from robots, what, what could happen?
0: You know, the, so the, the things that I was talking about just then are, are kind of focused on super sparsely populated pieces of Earth. But a lot of people are looking into the future and expecting that, you know, even more, much greater percentages of humanity will live in these densely populated areas, urban and peri-urban ones. So a lot of the thinking in the future of food and agriculture goes towards density farming. It's like, all right, if I only have a high rise or an acre or a half a city block, how can I still be a meaningful food producer? And so what a lot of people are familiar with is, you know, vertical farms. They might have seen some cool images or, you know, illustrations of what vertical farms will be. And with dropping costs in energy and with the the ability to print infinitely complex parts with, with different types of 3D printers vertical farming is going to become much more tempting and usable, uh, for large segments of society. I was just in Buenos Aires and saw a couple, um, initiatives that brought kind of demo vertical farming setups to, to poor schools. And you could just see as people walked by in the neighborhood, like people would stop and peer through the fence and ask questions like, how, how are you growing lettuce here? Because say like their entire neighborhoods, uh, soil was uh, long corrupted by having been like a dump or a a place where people chucked out old cars for a while. So as the value proposition of those things increases, you'll start to see them everywhere. But that's still more like, oh, for most people, that'll be like a hobby or a slight supplement to what they produce. At the same time, you've got uh, a lot of thinking going into like algae for food or insects for food, where you can take just a couple square meters and produce enough say cricket based protein or spirulina based superfood. Um, and people are figuring out uh, there's a, I've forgotten the name of it, but there's a spirulina, a rooftop spirulina, uh, company that's currently on Kickstarter trying to get, um, their set up on the, on roofs in, uh, I believe the Northeast of the United States doing incredible work at producing. I mean, if you look at just the raw, like how much how much of which nutrient they're producing in a, in a cylindrical vat of what size it's, it's incredibly efficient. And so we're going to see there's, a, there's of course like social marketing challenges here to, to acclimate people to wanting to bake cricket flour muffins with spirulina frosting. Um, but that sort of thing, you know, we, we have the creativity to, to get around the hurdles there. Um, and I think in general that like the, the happy side of this is you'll have we're, we're identifying more and more superfoods, and happily, a lot of these are in uh, grown in like vulnerable areas. So, if you're in, say, Senegal, they've got like moringa powder. They've got uh, tamarind. There's like turmeric all over all over Asia. There's we're starting to find these these ingredients that on their own um, command an incredibly high per kilo price right now in like health food stores, right? Where you give me a kilo of moringa and I'll pay you, you know. 20 quid or something, something ridiculous. And so we're starting to see people encouraged to, to stop growing like corn and potatoes and rice and pick up the cultivation of foods that are um, much more nutritionally rich, but less conducive to large-scale industrial commodity type trading. So that's that's a super fun trend that's gonna lead to lots of like localized and lucrative businesses and creative recipes. Um, And at the same time, you're going to be seeing this kind of vat grown cultured meat, you know, not not 3D printed, not just extruded, but like grown where people are figuring out how do we how do we cultivate protein out of what feedstocks? And so you'll have people looking around to figure, is there some kind of, you know, serum or is there some kind of medium that we that we're neglecting that can be pulled into the food chain and used to is there is there biomass, is there a way to repurpose food waste and sanitize it so that it can go into this kind of industrial protein production. Um I see that as another kind of uh branch of the future of food. And that that place is getting heaps of money because you know there's it's really clear what's the going rate for beef. And then if you can come in under that, you know, you win. But that's not the case. At the moment, it's not as clear for the kind of superfood stuff that I'm talking about, uh, which is why the superfood stuff probably works better for the small local people and doesn't pick up as much cash. And the other one's lending itself towards, you know, venture capital and serious labs.
2: I mean, what what gets us excited is, you know, that, uh, that idea of like the vertical farming because – it is just such a almost common sense way to go now with, you know, Space Limited. And even, you know, I live in, you know, the kind of northeast of England on the coast there. And we've got a, a city called Newcastle. And even, you know, this is where I first seen it, a department store that was kind of just great concrete looking hideous thing has now, you know, totally got these flower beds going vertically up, which just brings a, you know, I know this is kind of cities and,
0: but it's just totally different you will outlook and look out on, on this kind of gray drab building. And, and it's nice because you're right. Like one of the first reactions that people have to it is just like kind of in a, a refreshed aesthetic joy. They're like, they realize how plain and, and unexciting it was to always look at that concrete wall. And as soon as they see someone figured out how to like throw a layer of moss or ivy or flowers or cabbage or whatever they've done on it, you're like, right. Why had I gotten used to just, not applying my imagination to vertical spaces? Why did I just abandon them as useful? We're definitely pulling a whole plane back into our, our creative ecosystem. Um, And all of the things that would have stopped us before from, you know, pursuing that in terms of the energy required, especially to grow plants, if you're indoor, like if you can't count on sunlight, or if Say you're in an alley and the sun doesn't get down there that often, right? If, if, if LEDs and solar are making it much, much easier to provide the plant with what it needs for photosynthesis and, you can, uh, and then you can create kind of rigs, you don't have to buy like a one-size-fits-all vertical farming apparatus, but you can kind of print out the difficult parts and, and fit it to your space. We're going to be looking at properties and they're going to be raising their value by differentiating themselves. Both with the aesthetic appeal of this kind of stuff, and also the the impact on a family's kind of monthly food bills.
2: Nathaniel, it's it's just been lovely to kind of to talk and kind of it, it all you know it, it just gets excited, especially for me. You know, talking about future things, and then you know things there that are just so obvious. Do you know what I mean? It's thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa.
0: Hey, my pleasure. Have a good one.
2: There you go. Hope you enjoyed that. Nathaniel, thank you so much. I'm going to try and get Nathaniel back on there, because just his ideas and his thoughts and the way he's kind of thinking, just fantastic. Lovely, lovely to speak with him. Nathaniel, thank you so much. Before the main fiction, just a little shout out. Is there any Android coders out there? (laughs) Yes, we actually, the District of is we're putting out a, a little Android app, and it's going to be kind of at home, so you can kind of, you know, go from show to show and you can get the newsletter there and i've got a good friend leo leo saw who was kind of building this app but i didn't realize it. <laughs> no, no. a lot of work involved so leo says if, if there is any android coders out there want to kind of you know volunteer and help out please drop us a line and i'll kind of put you in touch and we we'll will have a great old time thank you so much Starships over at gmail.com. Now, main fiction, it is The Damaged by Bo- Bonnie Joe Stufflebeam. And like I say, it was originally published in Interzone magazine. And if Interzone's picking it, man, it's you know what I mean? You know it's up there, man. You know it's quality. I'll give you a little heads up about Bonnie Joe if you no know one knows about her. Bonnie Joe Stufflebeam's fiction has appeared in magazines such as Clark's World. Light speed and beneath ceaseless skies. She lives in Texas with a partner and two literally named cats, Gimli and Don Quixote. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Southern Maine Stone Coast program and creates the annual Arts and Words show in Fort Worth. You can visit her at Bonnie Joe Stuffle. And, I'll see, I'll put a link on there as well. Bonnie Joe stuff be our website as well, .com, so you can get straight to there if you pop over and have a look on the front of the website. Now, this story, man, just hits the nail on the head. Catherine Inskip. Catherine's done loads for her. And, you know, the voice is, is only as good as the, the the audio editor behind her, her husband, Jeremy. <laughs> I always like to get that in, Jeremy, lad. Eh? Sitting there in the, behind the scenes. But Catherine's voice is just fantastic. We've had Catherine on as well. Because Catherine's right into kinda of, you know, all the kind of astronomy and used to kinda of work as an astronomer as well. I don't know if she still does or not. But Catherine wears galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. <laughs> fantastic. She's addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. There you go. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
1: The Damaged by Bonnie Joe Stuffelbeam. I can't escape my job. Everywhere I go, I see ads for the company. On the subway, the sidewalks with our company logo engraved in concrete, the talking billboards which feature the intertwined bodies of flawless men and women in the downtown ad zones. I'm good at what I do. Playmates look and feel real. Warm skin, a clean but undeniably human smell. Only real isn't a word we're supposed to use. Of course they feel real. They are real. What I mean is they feel the same as blood and guts people do. They walk, talk, and fuck the same. Except for the damaged ones. The damaged eat with their hands. They'll eat whatever you give them—stale cornbread, powdered milk, reconstituted beef cutlets, and demand nothing more. They wear this far-off expression whenever they're addressed as if they're calculating the benefits of an answer. When the damaged speak, they speak in near riddles, riddles to which I have always suspected have no solutions. I work in the building where they make playmates, both the damaged and the ones that work right. It's a 50-storey skyscraper on the edge of the industrial district, which looks like most every other district. Shiny buildings, packed tight as the pedestrians rushing down grimy sidewalks, Except in the industrial district, smog fills the streets from a ten-hour flow of traffic, the constant hum of machinery operating inside. Our factory is one in a long line of unidentifiable factories, all black. In the basement, human and robotic workers toil over the assemblies. I've been down there only twice. The workers' bodies are all bone and bulk. Our robots are constructed from bioengineered human muscle. That and cyberskin, our own patented silicon-skin blend. The only way you could tell the humans from the robots would be to look at their insides. It's my job to know what those look like. I build the internal networks, sculpt intestine from tubing. My work is replicated by the millions. My workshop on the third floor is concrete and steel. Outside the door is a silver plaque with my name in bold letters. Robin Kirkland. The inside has a window on which I've hung purple curtains to make the place seem homey. In the hazy daylight, I carve muscle tissue with a sculpting knife. I bend microfilaments into circulatory shapes. I work alone, hunched over a table that lines the whole back wall of the workshop, and shape the parts I'm given until they look satisfactory. Then I ease them down into the plastic playmate mould to make sure they're the right size. Once I've got all the parts in there, save the upper muscle layer, I often stop and stare. Inside the mould, thin green wires reach like a hand into the head, crisscross through the torso and down into the arms, the legs. They don't carry blood through the body. Our playmates are bloodless, but they do carry heat. The handbook says that when the wires have been activated, they glow blue like veins. Some of the organs we don't bother with. The ones that filter waste are useless, as any food consumed travels through the pink intestinal tubing intact and exits as it would in a human, but whole. The ability to eat is just for show. Once I'm done gaping, I lay down the final muscle layer and weave the wires through it. The table's been organised into stations, A new station for each part, except the skin and bone. Another woman works the skin. The tech for these parts isn't mine. It filters down from the 50th floor. All I do is figure out new ways to make it fit, new ways to make the robots more authentic. I also sculpt hearts. But for every hundred playmates that come out normal, one comes out wrong. It's a glitch in the system, and like clockwork, it occurs at the same intervals. The damaged have cold skin, a malfunction in the wires, and, like I said, something weird in the expression, in the way they speak. The damaged aren't sold with the rest. They're sold, the females and males alike, to speciality shops, bulk buyers. Management knows what those buyers do to them. We ignore their beckoning fingers when we pass them on street corners in less favourable parts of town, in which the majority of us factory workers live. I can't be seen picking those damaged up. The ones I collect come from the subway, where they cower in corners and eat the skin off rats. Even though they don't need to eat, they've been programmed to. There's a switch in the control panel that lets you turn that off, but most people are scared to touch them, "'and in the subway it's hard to tell the damaged from the homeless. "'I know them because I'm drawn to them.' "'The first, he was a Damien too. "'He carried the name on his inner thigh, "'and when I lifted the edge of his shorts "'in the half-light of my apartment to find it, "'he slapped my hand away. "'What's black and white and cheeky?' he said. "'I don't know. What?' I asked, but he just laughed. He was strange-looking. Beautiful, of course. They were all beautiful, but his beauty, unlike the other Damien Twos, was forced. He shouldn't have been beautiful. He was too broken for beauty. I'd found him wandering the streets like a lost child. He couldn't have been older than three, though. Of course, he was built to resemble a twenty-five-year-old. His model had been released five years previous and it was still in production, though soon to be retired. The Damien II's bulky body had light features, light skin and eyes and hair, and he was prone to fits of giddiness. In the damage that giddiness manifested as an inability to be clever, his riddles repetitions of the same template. "'What's white and purple and sunshine?' he said. "'Are you hungry, Damien? Would you like some pasta?' He nodded. I fixed him pasta from a can. As he ate each string of spaghetti, picking it up with the tips of his fingernails and dropping it into his open mouth, he looked not at his plate but off into the darkened bedroom across the apartment. I had little experience with the damage then, one on one. I asked him if he saw something. He didn't answer until his plate was empty, the pool of tomato sauce at the bottom untouched. "'If the blind can't lead the blind, who will they turn to?' For a moment his lips were a narrow line. Then he broke into a blank grin. "'What's white and white and white all over?' He was white all over. When he took off his clothes, even his nipples were so light they glowed in the dark. I liked his whiteness. It kept me at a distance from memories I would have rather forgotten— which loomed in the brute thrust of every man, human or not, the memory of a dark and warm body beside me, the bitter smell of oil-paint and turpentine, heavy in black patches of body hair. Instead of curses, the Damien too moaned nonsense, words pulled from his language-bank seemingly at random—stripes, dartboard, keel, burst. Any neighbours listening in wouldn't have had a clue as to what we were doing— "'though I wasn't worried about people listening. "'They rarely did anymore. "'too absorbed in the constant hum of U-channels. "'As he slept, I imagined what his wires looked like, "'that blue glow inside him. "'I wondered what his breath looked like "'leaving the lungs I had made, "'how his skin would come apart "'to reveal my masterwork. "'I traced a line down his back, and pretended my finger was a knife. I kept Damien too for six days, until I began to worry that whoever owned him, and he was too clean to be abandoned, would come looking. It was theft. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
2: Let's
1: get this dinner party started. After all, of the highest class, as playmates were valued not only monetarily but also emotionally as precious companions. And he wasn't what I was looking for. Not really. I wanted one whose riddles made me shiver. Like the painter used to. "'when he sketched me with my clothes on "'and made me feel like he was painting the invisible pieces I could never show him. "'Words that would open me up and leave my insides exposed. "'Without that, I couldn't be bothered to take care of someone. "'But when I found it, I told myself I would hold their hand "'and keep them safe, even as they self-destructed, "'which was inevitable with the damaged.' They wore their riddles out until they could no longer form words or even master the complicated muscle movements of a smile. I'll be honest. I wanted to watch. I wanted to be there for their destruction. It intrigued and repulsed me. I wasn't allowed to buy a playmate for myself. Conflict of interest. We signed a contract. If we were to grow attached to one of our own creations, it might affect our decisions— We would be tempted to change things we wanted to see changed, to create models we wanted, not models that the public wanted. Instead, we cared nothing for the models we worked on. Each worker was in charge of such a small portion of the product that it was easy to be detached. Following my week with the Damien II, I took home as many damaged as I could find. None of them were what I was looking for. I brought back a Ken 5, an original Matthew, Even a Max II, trying to wrap my head around what it was I wanted. They were crazy, of course, but their riddles were often monotonous, the same old tricks of language. Uninspired, random. The Max II even seemed to have a hold on where he was, what he was. His riddles were nothing like riddles. I'll take care of you, my Clementine, he said, leading me back, down, into my bed. I'll make the ceiling spin like roses. After I let them free, I watched them wander off into the world again, back to their subway stations or the homes where no one watched over them. I wasn't sad to see them go. Some, I knew, had probably been shoved into closets, deemed broken, only to escape when their switches were turned on by some nosy kid. If I knew they had no one to go home to, I opened the control panel in the upper left side of their chest, "'passed over the red dials and the memory slot "'and switched off their hunger. "'The truth is, "'I don't know where they went when I let them go, "'and I don't know where they came from "'before I picked them up off the ground "'or carried them from the dumpsters. "'I cleaned them. "'Always I ran water in the bath and let them soak, "'wiped the grime from their faces, "'from their bruised bodies, "'not like a mother, but a cold stranger "'doing them a cold favor. I gave them clean clothes, clothes that once belonged to the painter. He had left them. In his clothes, the damage seemed as if they could walk into our factory and earn their own keep. The regular ones could do that, of course. That's what happened to most of them after they were no longer wanted. They could earn their price back and be given a life of their own. But not the damaged. They can never work. "'That's what I told myself when I finally did cut one open, "'that he would be helpless and alone in the world. "'I tried not to look at his name when I did it. "'I just wanted to see inside. "'My fingers itched for it. "'So when he was fast asleep, naked, "'on his stomach in my bed, "'I took a knife from the kitchen and ran it down his back, "'right where I knew the seam had been. "'I peeled the skin back as little as I could manage "'while still being able to see inside.' "'I figured it would hurt less, opening the old seam wound. "'Because these playmates, they feel pain. "'They feel it at smaller doses, but they feel it nonetheless. "'That is part of what makes them so believable. "'Inside, the wires I crafted gleamed blue "'in the light that crept through my window from the streetlights outside. "'It's never dark in the city. "'I could see the wires embedded in the thick red muscle tissue.' "'I opened the flap wider so I could take in all of the upper back. "'I wanted to know if my handiwork was what had made him damaged, "'but everything else looked as I'd seen it before. "'I moved the muscles aside so I could see the deeper organs. "'He was a newer model, though not the newest, "'so his wires were a little thick, his lungs the colour of vomit. "'I'd since fixed both of these problems, "'though peering in at the heart I noticed something I hadn't yet changed.' Something I had yet to even know needed changing. The heart pulsed on its own, a movement independent of its beats. I watched the red tissue bump bump, then pulse, bump bump, then pulse, bump bump, then pulse. It was expending more energy than it should with those extra pulses, pointless energy. The pulses weren't affecting his body in any way. I touched the heart. It felt like a wet sponge beneath my finger. It was partly made of sponge. From far away it would have resembled a human heart, though it was a simpler design, a pear-shaped lump with a single opening at the top where the wires connected for the energy to feed through. Suddenly he moaned, and his inside shuddered. I panicked, pulled my hands out of him and tried to shut his skin back, but I didn't have the tools. I backed away. He moved on the bed. I couldn't watch him stand. If he stood, parts of him might have bulged out the back. The spine, attached to the skin with the rest of his bones, wouldn't keep him from collapsing. I hesitated, stepped forward, then reached back inside and grabbed a handful of wires, tugging them. They sparked in my hands, then faded. His heart slowed, stopped, its final pulse even and sure. I heard the sound of his machinery dying, and then he lay unmoving on my bed. I removed the wires and spread them over the blanket and looked down into them. That was how I knew them best—free of skin. His body I tossed into the dumpster outside, wrapped in a black trash bag. It felt like a dirty cliché, and even though I knew there's no crime against disabling them, I felt like I would get caught. That night I didn't sleep. Instead, I thought of that damage I would watch destroy himself. I wondered if I really wanted to see someone else doing what I'd done to myself when I let the painter leave. But the idea felt too perceptive, so I shook it off. The heart troubled me. I didn't understand why it should be working overtime. When my shift was over, I went to the subway station. I found a young man cowed into a corner with several of the females, sleeping, dirt streaked across his face. A brand new model! So new the ads hadn't even gone up yet, and I marvelled at how quickly he'd wound up here. I shook him awake, took his hand. The strangers in the station probably thought I was a shelter woman, so I tried to act like one. I patted his hand while we walked. "'Oh, dearie,' I said, "'we'll have you fixed up in no time.' Get that hunger switch turned off. Clean you up. Make sure you have a nice bed. Yes, sir. Nobody looked me in the eye. What those ladies at the shelter do isn't thought of as a charity, but a burden, one people didn't want to share. But of course, I reminded myself, I don't work at the shelter. I work for the company that put him here. Back at home, once the Christopher had stripped to his skin, I ran the bath water and led him to it. I scrubbed all signs of dirt away, wondering how he could have gathered so much in so little time. It had only been one month since we produced his prototype. He must have been one of three hundred models' tops. Which meant there were roughly two more like him, damaged, out there already. I'm sweet sugar in my beginning, a rose in my middle, a sweetheart in my end. What am I? he said as I helped him out of the bath. "'his flaccid penis slapped against his inner thigh. "'Oh, God,' I said, laughing, "'they sure gave you something to brag about.' "'There had been a push for a sensitive model. "'I imagine that was where his riddle came from, "'some combination of all the love words "'they programmed into him. "'Bored me. "'I wanted something that made a garbled kind of profound sense, "'something I might read in a poem, "'if I read poems. "'I didn't let him dress.' I put him into bed. Beside him, my real heart raced. When I heard his sleep breath, deep and rattled, I cut him down the back. He was so new, his wires glistened. The heart, the newest model, pulsed the same as the other. I reached in and wrapped my hand around it. I ignored the movement of his body. I ripped the heart out, ripped the wires, "'piled them in a bunch on the bed. "'The body was silent, still. "'I hid the heart in the drawer of my bedside table. "'I sat and stared at the confusion of veins. "'My handiwork. "'I never could have imagined it would look so beautiful. "'Still it glowed blue with life. "'I did this again and again, the next night and the next. "'It began to feel like part of a routine.' Without it, without the dying embers of artificial life beside me, I found I couldn't sleep. Then I noticed something different. He was an older model, one of the oldest, and when I pulled out his heart, it had begun to crack. I could see inside the complicated mess something I didn't make, a barely perceptible flesh-coloured box. I removed it, and between my fingers the box squished. It was a tiny rectangle, like a coffin for a cockroach, made of some material I'd never seen before, nearly transparent, and near the same consistency of the silicone skin. There was something hard inside. I dug my nails into the box, and the flesh stuff came away easily enough. I imagined that with a few more years of energy pumping around it, the box would have worn away on its own, I couldn't imagine how it had already held up for so long. Once I had peeled that part off, I held in my hands a hard metal screw, no bigger than my pinky, and rusted brown. I turned it over in my fingers. It smelled like wet copper. I lifted it to my mouth and stuck out my tongue. It tasted like blood. Definitely copper. I didn't understand. Why was it there?' I tore through my apartment, collecting all the hearts I had saved from the bedside drawer, from my cupboard, from the bottom of the fridge. I tore each one open, and inside all of them I found the box. In some it was less worn, harder to tear, and in others it was more so. I collected the screws in a pile and stared at them, wondering. I wondered until my eyes ached, and then I slept. I dreamt about wires wrapping around me. The wires crept up and over me from beneath the bed. I couldn't breathe, they wrapped so tight, like a lover's desperate embrace. I woke up choking. I took one of the screws to work with me, and every ten minutes reached into my pocket to touch it, just to make sure it was still there. I wanted to know more, but there was no way to figure it out on my own. I would have had to give myself away, tell them what I'd been doing. "'I would have to come clean. "'I could have lost my job. "'Without my job I'd have nothing. "'I went home, "'but not before I found another playmate to take with me. "'His name, his thigh told me, was Lachlan 1.0. "'He was a middle-aged model, "'made back when the company was attempting to modernise its image. "'That soon went the wayside "'when they realised people wanted to be taken out of this world, "'put into a classic world they had only read about.' Lachlan 1.0 didn't test well. He was updated to the Lance One not long after his design. They'd released the ones they'd already manufactured, but he sold poorly. It wasn't just the name. The Lachlan was modern all over. He had metallic hair, cut into a side hawk. The hair on the one I found was greasy, flecked with dirt. All Lachlan models had an X moulded into one of the front teeth, and a gauge in the ear so big you could fit a teacup into it, though the one I brought home had removed his piercing, leaving the shriveled hole. His model was thin, lanky, unlike the rest of the playmates. Because of that, he fit in better with the young people. He could, the company had hoped, attract the large base of alternative youth, the only base we'd yet to conquer. As it turned out, the company didn't have a clue. They programmed him to say stupid things in an attempt at hip language. They programmed him to be impassioned about resistance to authority. They trained him to be everything people didn't want to see in a robot. He did make a nice change to look at, though. Across his upper torso, his living tattoo danced. Comprised of microscopic LEDs, the ink ocean roared over his ribcage. His skin stretched tight over him like a canvas. When I gave him a towel, I was sorry to see him cover up. I suggested we go to the bedroom, where I wanted to see his uniqueness prove artificial. On the inside he'd look the same as all the others. He would have one of those screws in a box in his heart. "'Got any pips?' he asked. He walked through the bathroom door and across the living area. My apartment was all open space in the common areas, no doors, into the kitchen. He searched through the cabinets which lined one wall. "'He opened the fridge and studied the contents. "'I'd dig a bowl of cereal in the night as well, if you don't mind.' "'Suddenly I was nervous. "'He was speaking like normal. "'But he had that damaged look. "'He did, and his voice sounded like an echo of what it should be, "'deep and lilting. "'He hadn't said a thing to me the whole way over, "'aside from some weird remark. "'How does a train transfer someone from the underworld?' "'Now he was asking for pips and cereal.' "'neither of which I had. "'And he had just let me bathe him like that. "'If he wasn't damaged, he should have objected. "'He should have made small talk, asked me my name. "'I have some whisky,' I said. "'Old stuff. "'Just a bit left, but you can have it.' "'I pointed to the cabinet. "'He poured two glasses and handed one to me. "'Right well you do,' he said as he took a sip. "'This is rude stuff here. "'I drank mine in a gulp.' "'He refilled my glass. "'Lachlan, right?' I asked. "'How are you feeling this evening?' "'He still hadn't looked me in the eye. "'He peered into his glass, "'then across the cabinets. "'Better now, all cleaned off and all. "'Did you enjoy the bath?' "'Then he did it, looked me straight on. "'Right well I did.' "'He winked. "'I sunk into my dining chair.' "'My hands trembled. "'I put my glass down. "'Didn't you?' he asked. "'I thought that was a factual point.' "'He stared back at the same spot on the cabinet. "'Are you looking for something?' I asked. "'You know, I've been wondering, "'what's a rude woman like you doing, "'picking people off the streets? "'Honestly, I thought you were taking me to one of those safeties. "'Thought I was in for a feast.' "'What you've got here is potato flakes and pastry cakes.' "'Do you mind?' "'He took the box of pastry cakes from the cabinet, "'unwrapped one, shoved it in his mouth in one bite. "'You're not exactly one of those women, are you?' "'He said, mouth full. "'I'm not,' I said, picking at my nails. "'Are you a cop?' "'A representative of the company. "'Were you sent to make sure I'm not, you know, "'engaging myself with you lot?' "'Am I a cop?' He laughed. Why, have you been unruly? Of course not. I drained the second glass. So, a representative? You work for the company, then. Right, well. Methinks what you're doing here is unruly indeed, am I right? All I've done is give you a bath, a bit of drink. I looked at the towel wrapped around his middle. Would you like some clothes? He shrugged. I imagine I'll be getting naked round here sometime, if I know your make. I didn't ask you here to get naked. Honestly, I was trying to help you. I thought you were damaged. He grinned. His tooth was chipped below the X. I could be, if you wanted. He looked at me again. What do women want? He laughed. That's riddle enough for the world. What is the square root of a woman? "'He lifted the whiskey bottle and poured some down his throat. "'What burns going down and sings coming up?' "'Stop it,' I said. "'I looked at the door, then back at him. "'I crossed and uncrossed my legs, wrung my hands. "'I was trying to help you. "'I didn't bring you here to mock me.' "'I need your help,' he said. "'I've got all this energy. "'I need to know what makes a human hum.' When he moved toward me, I didn't try to turn away. He wasn't damaged. I could see that. Not the way the others were. But there was something in him that was gone, and I wanted more than anything to find out what it was. I wanted to cut him open, anyway. I wanted to know what was going on in there. I wanted that body on my bed. He pushed me past the dining-table, through the door into the bedroom, onto the bed— until, effortlessly, he was naked, and my skirt lay discarded on the floor. The warmth of his body startled me. I closed my eyes and imagined the painter. His skin was the colour of twilight. His sad, brown eyes. But the painter had always been silent and steady when we made love, and Lachlan moaned and thrashed. Then came the awkward moment when I was done, and told him, which set off his own spasm. They'd been made to trigger when we said so. He quivered under me. Afterward, I waited for him to fall asleep, but as the clock clicked past three in the morning, he kept singing beside me, a vile drinking song. Don't you sleep? I asked. Not much, he said. Not if someone's eyeing me like that. I tried to fake it, but the second my eyes shut, I was out. When I woke, "'he hovered over me, a tangle of wires in his hands. "'I see why you were wigged,' he said, "'about me being a cop. "'You know, I don't think there's a law against this, though.' "'He dropped the wires onto my bare stomach. "'Except, of course, you work for the company. "'Can't own your own playmate. "'That makes this theft, and to top that off.' "'Taking them apart like this makes it destruction of stolen property. "'The highest degree of destruction, methinks, artificial intelligence.' "'I sat up. "'Below him, covering the floor of my bedroom, "'were the rest of the wires I'd been saving, "'pulled from beneath the bed and strewn from the bed to the door. "'The drawers of my bedside table and dresser were open, "'wires spilling from them as well. "'No, no, you see, it's what I do. "'I sculpt those wires,' I said.' "'light-headed, heart-stuttering. "'Right, well. "'If you did, Miss Robin Kirkland, "'you'd know, wouldn't you, "'that the only way they colour blue like this is from use.' "'Of course,' I said. "'Of course I know that. "'They were given to me, quite obviously, "'after they were dismantled, "'so I could look over my work. "'What I can't figure is, "'decent, rude woman like you, "'what are you doing snatching our insides out?' "'What do you find in there?' he said, his voice hard. "'Are you going to go to the company? "'Are you going to tell them?' "'I could feel the sweat beads on my forehead. "'The room was hot. "'I tried to sit up, but I was too dizzy. "'I should. "'Save my own skin, right, well?' "'Then, no warning, the blank look passed back over his face "'like he'd never seen this room before. "'But it wouldn't be like that.' I'd be wires and dirt, I would. Sure they might fire you, but me not to silence me but dirt. It sounded like poetry. No, I won't tell the company. Not if you tell me what you've lit on. The words came easy. I wanted to explain, so he wouldn't tell, so he wouldn't think poorly of me, so he would understand even just a little bit. So I told him all of it. From the first uncertain reasons I bought the damaged playmates home that I liked the way my work looked, alive and throbbing underneath me, and I needed something cold to hold on to, because a warm body would remind me of the painter as his had, to my unbearable urge to look inside, to discover where a body's coldness came from. I told him of the discovery of the heart's extraneous pulses, how I found the flesh-coloured boxes with the screws inside. When I came to the end of my account, He looked at me as if I had told him I was dying. "'I feel myself running down, you know,' he said. "'Scares me right well. "'You know I'm not one of them, the damaged. "'But I've seen my mate go that way. "'Most of the time it doesn't happen soon enough. "'We're abandoned in closets and tossed in dumpsters.' He gave me a look that for a moment made me question whether he hadn't been watching me all along, seen the trash bags I'd carried out. "'For those of us still switched on, most of us go damaged.' "'He shrugged. Two to five years, if we're used proper. "'My work should last longer than that. "'It's designed to last longer. "'What of those screw boxes? "'How long they rigged to last?' "'I don't make those,' I said. "'I don't know where those come from.' "'Methinks we're not rigged to last. "'Methinks permanent companionship it fizzles out in five years' tops.' How old are you? Five and a half. You look good for your age. Up close, his eyes were as grey as the smog outside, his eyelashes long and beautiful. The dark must have kept me from noticing. Or maybe I kept me from noticing, unwilling to grow attached. I don't know about you, he said, but I want to know what's inside me. I shook my head. I couldn't. "'Not that, you whack woman! "'I want to go to work!' "'We rode the subway over once the building closed. "'I had a key, for those late nights working, "'that would get us through the front door, "'but it would only get us as far as my workshop. "'Lachlan told me not to worry, "'and though I didn't know if I could trust him, I didn't care. "'I was tired. "'What we were doing made my stomach spin "'as it hadn't since the painter and I "'made silent love on the kitchen floor.' So I led Lachlan through the lobby, sneaking past the camera's gaze. We rode the elevator to the fiftieth floor. We exited. These were the doors that belonged to the people who did nothing with their hands. They watched and decided, but they'd never touched one of them, not in any professional sense. Lachlan led the way. As it turned out, he'd been there before. He was, he admitted in a whisper, hired by the company. They'd seen me. Didn't I think they would see me? In the subway, lifting the damage from the ground, dragging them with me on the train. He knew where they would keep the files. I wanted this adventure. I wanted to run back home. I wanted to push Lachlan against the wall and take him. My breath shook, but I knew what we were going to find. Really, this trip was just for show. I knew I'd lose my job, sooner or later, and Lachlan knew he'd lose himself. "'Of course the company programmed our robots to fail. "'Of course the boxes were meant to biodegrade, "'the screw to be let loose into the heart, "'where it would puncture and damage the tissue irreparably. "'Companies had been manufacturing products "'that would run down eventually for years. "'It started with refrigerators, and now here we were. "'But why were some of them made damaged? "'If the company created them on purpose... Was it for people like me? Too broken to keep unbroken things around? I half hoped this was the case. It would mean there are enough people like me to warrant a market for them. Once we were by the office door, Lachlan wedged his fingernail into the skin on the right side of his chest and pried his control panel open. He pushed his finger into the panel and pulled out a square chip as small as a tooth. At first I thought it was his memory card, but it wasn't. There was a slot in a similar panel next to the door, and he pushed the chip into it. The door clicked open. We went inside. "'How did you do that?' I asked. "'I saw them do this when we met here before, to complete my paperwork a few years ago. I recognised the tech. "'Rigged one up myself,' he whispered, though we were alone. "'Spiked the cameras, too.' The file cabinet was locked. The company kept their files stored on disks outside the computer for fear of hackers, competitors and free rights organisations. Lachlan picked it with a hairpin. I wanted to laugh, but I couldn't bring myself to make the noise. Inside he found several spherical disks, the size and shape of gold balls, labelled from the start of the company twelve years ago. He dropped them into the bag he'd brought. We left the way we came in. "'Afterward, as we ran through the streets clutching the bag, "'I felt the air on my face, "'and it felt like it used to when I was a kid, "'when I was a young woman in love with a flesh-and-blood man "'whose clothes were covering the body of the robot running before me. "'I had to stop several times to catch a breath. "'Lachlan ran ahead on thin legs. "'The painter's legs had also been thin. "'Always he moved like a shadow through my apartment. "'He, too, was broken.' "'Depressed feels like such a thin word,' he had said to me often in that dark. "'And it's such a thin feeling.' "'He passed that brokenness down to me. "'He had dreams of another country, of walking on green instead of grey. "'When he got his chance, he went. "'Come with me.' "'We had been in bed. "'Outside we could hear the muffled roar of the billboards going in the ad-zone four blocks down.' "'sound you got used to. "'He claimed he had never been used to it, "'never would be. "'You need to get out of here.' "'I can't,' I said, rolling away. "'How could I go with no guarantee we would make it? "'No guarantee that life was better on the other side? "'His darkness was beautiful, "'but he would drown me in it, "'in a world where I was nothing but his. "'After all, a place is just a place.' There would be nothing there that could sculpt me into a different kind of person. I didn't go with him. He left me behind. At my apartment, Lachlan went through the files, plugging the disks into his panel. When he found what we were looking for, I brought it up on my computer. I was right and wrong. The damage weren't a mistake. Or they weren't as big a mistake as a company would like people to think. They were, the file said, an unfortunate consequence of the built-in obsolescence, the biodegradable flesh-coloured box, the screw that the company placed in the playmates' hearts, so they would wear down within five years or so, causing the customer to purchase replacements. Without the built-in obsolescence, the company's base of satisfied consumers would remain satisfied. There would be no reason for them to buy another playmate, if their first continued to function, and the company would cease to turn a profit." Ten dollars extra it cost them, per model, to install the screw. Only in some models, the damaged, the body rejected the foreign object. It hadn't been programmed in, and therefore wasn't part of the system as the electronics knew it. They were unable to function properly even the five years it would take for the screw to come loose. Some might say, I thought as I read over the text, that the damaged are the smart ones. They know something's the matter with their parts. "'and they won't pretend it isn't.' "'Robin, how could they know?' "'Lachlan asked, popping the disc out of the computer's drive. "'How possibly?' "'He downed another pips. "'The empty bottle clinked on the concrete floor where we sat, "'the discs strewn about us like marbles. "'I wouldn't know,' I said. "'I felt like I should apologise to him. "'But I also felt as if he too must have known "'that this was what we would find.' and so part of me thought he'd been searching for it all along. The factual question is, how do I get it out of me? There's no way, I wanted to say. Once the skin is open, there's no way back. We could broadcast this. Maybe, once people see, he said. Maybe, I said. His eyes narrowed. You think they already know. My hand rested on his shoulder. His eyes lacked the lively dart of human eyes. When he spoke, people knew that the number of things he said was exhaustible. He had only so many possible combinations of letters and numerals, only so many inflections. His wires would burn out, and there would be no grave for him. There would be no graves for any of them. Their graves would be the junkyard, and when the record of our time was lost and all that remained was our bones, "'The damaged would have no names because they had no bones. "'Their parts would be melted down "'to make more things that people use "'to fill the empty spaces in their beds, "'their workrooms. "'I realised that Lachlan's skin was cold in my palm. "'We should tell them. "'We should try, at least.' "'There was a grin that I'd never seen on his face, "'wide-eyed and stupid. "'This, it seemed to say, "'was an entirely new kind of adventure.' This could get us killed. But I knew the truth. That he had watched too many movies on the U-channels, too many thrillers where the consequences of corruption are always disastrous. I humoured him, because I loved the grin. It reminded me of a grin I used to know. My own. When we went to bed, he talked like he was on upper. As the night passed, his words warmed the room. I entered the space between dreams. His words made less sense. And then, of course, I said, why else would a door be like a cockatiel? And the chief said cockatiels only take wing north in the evening. And I knew then, of course, how could I not have that the cockatiel was like a door and that it was also like a desk? In my sleep, I muttered, what's a cockatiel? It was a word I didn't know, and I was surprised he knew any word I didn't. I waited for his answer, but all that came was silence. When I opened my eyes, he was gone. I wondered for a moment if I'd imagined him. Then I heard the noise in the bathroom. A clink, as if someone had dropped a pair of nail clippers into the sink. I went to him. There was a window in the bathroom, and the streetlight shone across his naked body. I saw him barely lit in the mirror. His tattoo was glitching. "'the ocean seizing up. "'He stood at the sink, "'hands close to his face, "'and he appeared to be scraping "'something off the inner palm of his hand "'where his lifeline was. "'I was seized with the urge to know "'if his lifeline was truly as short "'as five years, tops, "'or if it stretched on, "'an illusion, "'if someone in the company thought of that, "'whether they made the line reflect "'the way things really were, "'or the way customers think "'they would like them to be. "'I stepped up close to him, so close I could smell his clean skin, the slight musk of his underarms. They did a good job with the smell. I wanted to see his lifeline. I wanted to help him wash away whatever mark had found its way to mar that line. But when I was close enough to touch him, I was close enough to see a pair of scissors in the sink, a jagged hole the size of a button in his palm, and Lachlan tearing at the skin, pulling the wound bigger, until the hole of his palm was open. I wanted to stop him, but I was caught by the beauty of that glowing blue wire in the dark, in the mirror. In his reflection the light generated a shadow of his silhouette, but I couldn't focus on anything but how the beads of light blinked back at us in crisscrossing lines. They looked like elongated strands of the double helix. "'Am I a cockatiel?' he said. "'Am I beautiful?' "'Am I factual?' "'Am I broken?' These were riddles to which I had an answer. "'Am I beautiful?' he asked again. He looked into his damaged hand as the other hand grasped the wires inside. He tugged, and a wire snapped. His eyes in the mirror grew distant, colder than I'd seen them. I wrapped my arms around his chest, and helped him pull the blue from his body. As we pulled he wilted until he was no more than synthetic skin and muscle on the floor. I peeled the skin away. I held his heart in my hands. The screw's pointed edge stuck out from the muscle, having finally worked its way through. I never answered his riddles. The information I kept to myself, the discs I returned in a sealed baggie. I got out of that place, Went to another city of Grey where I got another job that followed me everywhere. I tried to avoid the cold. I left the damage behind.
2: And there you go. Don't forget copyright ears, Bonnie Jo. Bonnie, thank you so much for that. What a story, man, thank you. Do you know what I mean in his own knows how to kind of pick a good story? That is fantastic. I'll put a link on, like you say, to come over and and see Bonnie Joe. Just a fantastic writer there, just on a kind of you know just starting out there, brilliant. And Catherine, what can I say? A big thank you, big thank you for that amazing narration. I know, all right, Jeremy. There you go as well. Thank you. <laughs> so there you go. That is it. And a big thank you just before we go as well. All the people that's kind of you know wrote in and says thank you for the little kind of. At the end, 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 my little kind of rambles as well. I'll put a few more of them in as the weeks go by. But, you know, I'm glad you like them as well. So there you go. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I said, if there is any audio, you know, audio Android, should I say, programmers, coders out there, we could do it with a bit of help out there. We could do it with a bit of help with support. We have the Patreon page there now. You know, we kind of, this is it. We're kind of flying high there. You know what I mean? No support, no nets. It's just down to us. The whole kind of network now is relying on donations. Do you know what I mean? Come over there and do the right thing. Until next week. Just like I say, good night from me.
1: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting
2: installment of Russian Sofa: A Procedure Machine. for three two.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.